This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Jordan Howell, Assistant Professor and Cybersecurity Researcher at the University of South Florida. Jordan, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here today. Excellent. So, Jordan, to get started, why don't you do us a favor? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background, and how you got to be in teaching criminology and digital forensics. Yeah, Dave. Um, so, as you already said, I'm an assistant professor at the University of South Florida in the Department of Criminology. It was a strange journey to get here, to be honest. I you know, originally enrolled in my PhD program at the University of South Florida you know, back in 2016. I immediately dual enrolled in a digital forensics program. And after I finished the digital forensics program, I really got some hands-on experience that led me to be recruited for a postdoc position at Georgia State University. And that position was really meant to you know, develop this evidence-based cybersecurity research laboratory that was hands-on, industry-oriented, bringing together academics and industry professionals from all over. The issue was I hadn't graduated from the PhD yet, right? It's a postdoc position. And I was, you know, two years into the PhD program. I accepted the position anyway, went over to Georgia State University. I helped co-launch the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Laboratory. It's becoming a center this year. It's doing fantastic. You know, two years later, I graduate. I take my first job as an assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso in Intelligence and National Security Studies. Um, there, I started working more with industry, financial institutions, government agencies, et cetera. And that's when USF recruited me to come back and start building up, you know, our cybercrime, cybersecurity infrastructure. I came here, started teaching classes, developing degree programs, and launched Sarasota Cybersecurity, an interdisciplinary research laboratory that seeks to do exactly what I said, right? Bring together industry practitioners and academics alike to ensure that, you know, we're promoting a safe and secure cyberspace while mentoring the next generation. Excellent. That's good stuff. So some questions for you about the lab, if it's okay. So your lab, how many students? Yeah, so we're growing. We started last year when I arrived to USF. We're up to about 25 students, Okay. Um, graduate, master's, and PhD. Okay. Wow. Excellent. So are there unique journals that you guys look to publish into? I'm familiar with some. I came up through high-performance computing, building Beowulf clusters, things like that. And we had some very specific journals that our researchers were trying to publish into, aside from kind of the science journals, because a lot of them were working on radio, telescope data, and stuff like that. But on the actual HPC side, there were some journals where we were looking to get published into. Are there ones that are unique to forensics and, and cybersecurity? So our main goal is to disseminate our research to the widest audience possible. So when we disseminate to academic audiences, we obviously want to aim for those premier outlets to ensure that you know the best scientists are reading and engaging with our work. But the issue is uh, practitioners and you know everyday internet users simply aren't reading these academic journals. Oftentimes, they're behind a paywall. So we try to be more accessible with our work. We want our work to be translational. We want to ensure that what we're doing actually has an impact on the communities that we're doing the research for. So we often publish in AT&T Cybersecurity. And The Conversation. The Conversation's been a fantastic outlet. Each article receives hundreds of thousands of reads and often leads to interviews and press releases across the country and worldwide even. We have some of our research being translated in um, various languages and disseminated across various continents and countries. So it's had a good impact. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I've never been a fan of the paywall mechanism. I think it's bad enough how much the textbooks cost. 
And then to see the journals that come out of the other end, uh, you have to pay again. Uh, that always did bother me. The folks, I forget his name now, one of the guys who started Reddit, the Reddit Red website, got in a huge amount of trouble as a result of kind of freeing some of those publications ended up, I think, committing suicide or something over the fear of going to jail from it. So that's very excellent uh, news that you guys not circumvent it, but realize that hurdle and, and try to get your research out to folks uh, generally. So tell me, what's your day-to-day look like? Like, are you overseeing uh, graduate projects? Are you their compass? Are you their barometer? You know, whoa, what's your day-to-day look like? Yeah. So firstly, just backing up just a bit, because I want to kind of expand upon what you said, because I really appreciated that comment. You know, we tend to perpetuate this divide between academia and industry, creating this ivory tower mindset. And I think it's extremely problematic, um, which really leads into my answer to this question. My day-to-day is trying to bridge that divide. You can't listen to any news station or any cybersecurity podcast without someone mentioning the skills gap, right? Our students are graduating and they're simply not equipped to fill the roles that our nation and various companies you know, need to be filled, right? They, they don't have the skills, they need to be trained. And that's what I'm looking to do, right? We're making sure that when we work with industry, we're finding out exactly what it is they need and we're equipping our students with those skills while simultaneously advancing cybersecurity as an academic discipline. So while most academics tend to think of whatever it is they do in terms of research, we think about it in terms of research and how that research can translate into policy and actionable solutions. So when I work with students, I ask them, what do you want to do upon graduation? And when they tell me, I immediately look to the people in that industry. So we collaborate with Homeland Security. We have partners that are CISOs and CEOs at Fortune 500 companies. And we say, hey, what do you need? And then we teach our students those skills. And oftentimes they are able to intern with these companies and oftentimes are offered high paying salaries upon graduation. So I look at myself as a mentor to the next generation while recognizing my own limitations. I have a skill set. The CISO has a skill set. Every cybersecurity professional has a skill set. But it's when we sit in the same room and discuss these skills and ensure that the next generation is receiving the best training. Um, that's when cybersecurity can really improve. And that's how I spend my day or at least attempt to spend every day. <laughs> sure. So let me ask you. So that's a very unique opportunity to get kind of direct insight like that, uh, having the ability, you know, to reach out to folks in these sectors and say, you know, what what are your gaps and, and what talents and what skills should we be imparting on people to help fill those gaps off the top of your head? What are some of those? Here's what I find really interesting. This is the biggest divide, in my opinion, between academia and industry. When I talk to my industry partners, they are eager for a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift in which we start assessing both the human and the technical components inherent within a cyber crime incident. So a more holistic cybersecurity solutions, if you will. Whereas in academia, we seem to focus on either the technical components. We try to build out these impenetrable systems, um, completely forgetting that there's an individual behind the keyboard. Or social scientists, often some of my colleagues in criminology, will completely forget technology exists, right? They focus so heavily on theories of human behavior. They fail to understand that these individuals have to use technology in order to orchestrate their criminal activities. So what I find the industry is really eager to adopt is this more holistic framework that takes into account human behavior and really adopts an intelligence gathering framework, right? So understanding human behavior by gathering threat intelligence and then using that information to improve upon the technical solutions that we're currently implementing. Because if you date back to the art of war, once you know your opponent, 
you know, fear not a thousand cyber battles is uh, a paraphrase, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So when you're reaching out to folks, do you just tell them like, hey, what are your gaps? And they just tell you, because I would imagine in particular in the corporate space, right? Less so in national defense or, or let's say, you know, government space, because gov space, I think they're less scared to say these things. But a lot of times corporate, in particular, publicly traded companies, they're hesitant to kind of express what their technical concerns are for fear that it represents some type of shortcoming in their overall position. So how do those conversations go? Are, are they eager to tell you? Are they hesitant? Do you have to you know, get to know somebody, work them into it, and then they start to tell you these things? Or, or do folks just share it easily? Well, so it depends, right? It varies across sectors and it varies by organization. And I've had to sign several NDAs for the exact reason you're discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals and companies are terrified of their weaknesses becoming known to the public because it exposes them and could often impact um, other domains as well, rather than just you know their security posture. Mm-hmm. But I find that most industries I've reached out to are very receptive, but I take a different approach when approaching um, other stakeholders. I find some of my colleagues approach potential partners with this idea that they want something from them, right? Academics are notorious for that. Like, uh, I want you to give me your data so I can do blah, blah, blah. I approach people differently, right? I, I, I take the Thanksgiving approach. I always bring something to the table and that's how I start the conversation. So rather than walking up to a CISO or the head of any organization and stating, hey, please tell me what your security flaws are so I can try to improve them. What I often do is I start by gathering threat intelligence or looking for my own vulnerabilities and then approaching them with those in mind. We were able to collect this information. It's all open source. If I can find it, so too can your adversaries. Here's how I believe we can help improve upon your security posture. And that oftentimes leads to a conversation, a partnership. And that partnership often leads to the exchanging of ideas and is fruitful in coming up with something that works for both of us. It allows me to implement a rigorous scientific process using scientific methodology to find out what's working, what isn't working, how we can improve upon it. But it allows them to actually implement it and tell me, yeah, it's working. No, it's not working. Because maybe it works in the ivory tower, right? Maybe it works in the lab, but does it work in real life? And when those partnerships are effective, it's a beautiful thing, right? Because again, both cybersecurity as a discipline, academic discipline and industry can bolster and um, you know, that's how we protect end users. Sure. So you had mentioned the kind of two sides of the house, right? You have your purely technical people, and then you have your, let's call them sociologist vein folks. Because I, in my language, I think, you know, SIGINT or uh, human, you know, but it's the same concept, right? What do you see? Like, so these worlds are far apart, right? And like you said, they tend to either look over each other or meaning like they think one is a lower practice. So they tend to, you know, look over them or they're unaware of those intersections. What do you think things like AI are going to do to help bridge those gaps? Like, could you see those two disciplines being better able to merge together using other technologies like that? I have a different view on AI than most of my colleagues and contemporaries. Oftentimes when I talk about AI or machine learning, others view it as this panacea, this end-all, be-all cybersecurity tool. I disagree. I view AI as a tool, and the power of said tool is really in the hand of who wields it. 
Some individuals will use AI extremely effectively and in doing so be able to, you know, further close the divide between the social sciences and the more technical aspects of cybersecurity, while others will use it to further that divide. Because with AI, you have to have at least a baseline understanding of both. And I'm, what I'm worried about is individuals will take AI and they'll feed it certain information, and that's just going to further the biases they already hold. So I think for AI to be an effective way to merge you know, the social and the technical sciences requires individuals like myself, and there's several others, I'm, I'm not unique in this regard, who understand that cybersecurity is multifaceted. You have to understand theories of human behavior. You have to understand intelligence gathering, and you have to understand the technical components that allow an individual to access your network illegally. Mm -hmm. And once an individual understands these three components, and if they're able to effectively use AI to bridge the gap, that'll be a very effective way forward. It's just most people aren't equipped to do that. Therefore, they won't do that. And AI will be as irrelevant as you know Google Scholar for someone who doesn't understand how to you know properly search for and engage with the literature. Yeah, I'm with you. By the way, I'm I'm not a huge fan of AI. Uh, in fact, I have lots of concerns about it potentially bottoming out the entry level positions of the industries, and I think that would be a terrible mistake because then where do your experts come from if nobody could be, ever be a neophyte? But you talk about it being a tool, right? And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I could see a future where you could feed AI all of the RFCs associated to like technical nuance, but I would argue that we lack adequate access to kind of miscreant culture and miscreants as a whole to where we could ever create models, behavioral models that could describe the social science side. And not to paint them, by the way, as like, uh, you know, I forget that famous psychic lady uh, who, you know, you could call on, on the phone who used to be on talk shows all the time. I forget her name now. Rose, Psychic Rose, that was her name. But not to paint sociologists like Rose the Psychic, you know, but they are a little bit like that because they are understanding motives based on behaviors without having to have spoken to the person, right? But AI, it cannot possibly do that. You have to feed it a body of work that includes like a lot of interviews, basically. You would have to go out and interview miscreants, which, you know, how would you determine the deception from the truth in their answers? Because these are people who are miscreants. I mean, so they may be lying altogether on purpose and things like that. So I would agree with you. It, it is a tool, but I could see a future where the social science folks benefited from AI in that direction, where they could say, show me all of the technical ways that some situation could have happened. And I could see it helping them, you know, do the legwork if, if they understood the person well. But I would struggle to imagine what, that movie with Tom Cruise, Minority Report. I don't imagine us ever really coming to a universe, you know, where AI is predicting the likelihood that someone's truly going to commit crime, because I just don't know how you would study people well enough. And I, sorry, I went on a long tangent there, but I mean, any thoughts on that stuff? Because I would imagine you're tracking the application of this stuff. Well, well you're speaking my language, right? Um, this is one of my favorite conversations to have, so I'm, I'm thrilled that you brought it up. The last thing I'm going to do is, you know, spend time on your podcast complaining about my colleagues in the social sciences. But let me spend a minute complaining about my colleagues in the social sciences. <laughs> I've become disenchanted with the scholars in these fields who claim to be experts in cybercrime, cybersecurity. 
because they try to build out these behavioral models, but they don't engage with the individuals who are actively engaging in these uh, malicious attacks, right? Instead, they talk to college students or the general public can say, hey, hey, if you were a hacker, if you were a hacker, Dave, would you hack this website or and why? Why would you do it? Right. And then they call themselves cybersecurity experts. That'd be like me saying, hey, Dave, if you were a dolphin, all right, if you were a dolphin, would you swim this way or would you swim this way and why? And then calling myself a marine biologist. Right. Lab has really blown that model up. And we're actually embedded within the illicit online networks and we're working with active, verified, malicious hackers. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the website Zone H, but it's the largest hacking archive in the world. 15 million registered attacks, all of which are verified, 168,000 active users. I've developed a good rapport with the administrator of the site, Marcelo, and he actually posted an advertisement on the homepage that allows active hackers to take a survey that we're administering so we can better understand their motivations, their modus operandi, their pathways to offending, and potential paths to desistance. And then we're following up some surveys, and then uh, we have some honeypot studies that are forthcoming as well. I'm not going to get into that. But the idea here is that if we want to build out behavioral models to understand hacking culture, we need to engage with the population ahead. We need to engage with those who are actively conducting this type of crime. Otherwise, the results simply aren't generalizable. You can ask me what I would do if I was a trucker, but at the end of the day, I'm not a trucker. And there's lived conditions that change you and your character and until you lived those experiences, until you are engaged in that culture and that lifestyle, you simply don't know what you would do. So the current body of work, in my opinion, is uh, really bad. And that's really what motivated me to um, you know, step in, intervene, and build a lab to disrupt that model and ensure we bridge those gaps and fulfill you know, industry's need for that paradigm shift, the holistic solutions. Sure. That's great to hear. So I know you said you didn't want to get deeply into it. But just one quick question about that work. So I hope the answer here is yes, but is it safe for me to assume that you're using honeypots as the applied rigor to what the people are saying so that you can see, like, do we see these behaviors that these people claim to do? Is that uh, part of your rigor or is it unrelated research? Yeah, it is. It is. So we, we use honeypots for a variety of reasons. I think it's a really innovative way to better understand active offenders, you know, rather than just using survey designs, because like people may lie, right? Um, they may misrepresent the truth for a variety of reasons. Some as simple as just wanting to look cool. Whereas if they're trapped inside of a honeypot, especially if they're unaware, you can find out just how skillful they are, what type of tactics they engage in, and who's doing what and what scenario. And once you have that information and you're able to combine that with threat intelligence gathered from a variety of other sources, you get a better picture. You're, you're able to kind of zoom out and understand the entire ecosystem, or at least the culture at large. And once you have those different data points and you can build these more robust profiles, then you can better understand your adversary. And when you understand your adversary, you can put forth better and more nuanced intervention strategies. This whole one-size-fits-all approach to cybersecurity has failed. It fails time and time again. Cybersecurity companies won't tell you that because they make billions of dollars profiting on saying, hey, hey, the product I have, that's going to work. That's going to keep your computer safe across all, all situations, all scenarios. Sure. But in all actuality, academic rigor is required. And once we find out what works and what doesn't work in which context, that's when we can improve upon these intervention strategies and you know, improve our 
posture as a whole? Yeah. You know, I have uh, argued for years that employment would be an amazing strategy for society to employ or deploy, let's call it, to actually curb cybercrime in Eastern Europe. So post-Soviet countries where they had high mathematics, high science, strong value around education, but no jobs. So when kind of the perfect storm of technological adoption without understanding happened, which I would argue is still happening, right? People have no idea. They're wholly reliant on technological systems, but they have no idea how they work. All of their money is electronic. They vote electronically, you name it. They get their medical records sent to them electronically. I mean, it's all reliance on technologies that they have literally no idea how they work. Take that perfect storm of all these valuable things, right? And trying to understand motivations of miscreants is like, there's a galaxy of reasons, but a huge swath of them come down to financial gain. And I've suggested for years, you know, people laugh because like SCIO, I get all kinds of these ads like, hey, come hire Eastern European developers, right? For software developers. And, you know, my gut is, is like, yeah, right. Uh, you know, I want a bunch of this very people that where I'm working to catch at night because there is a large overlap, you know, obviously socially uh, with that same crowd are responsible for all kinds of attacks. But the more I thought about it over time, the more I realized that that would be an amazing way to actually curb some of these attacks is eliminate their need to commit crime in the first place by giving them the opportunity for gainful employment. And, you know, understanding kind of motivations like that, I know it sounds simplistic because it's not, you know, the sexy cyber solution. Like you said, you know, it's like not something that you can print out up front of a box is like I gave somebody a job.com. You know, it isn't much of a cyber solution marketing wise, but I would argue that it is, you know. So back to some questions about your lab, and I do apologize. So to our listeners, I typically send folks a set of questions that we're going to talk about as we go through the podcast. And unfortunately for Jordan, the only one I asked him was how he's doing today. Uh, the rest of this, I've been just winging it, but because uh, it's very interesting stuff uh, in my opinion. But back to your lab, can you tell me some in particular relative to say undergrads as undergraduates are working their way up, what disciplines should they be pursuing so that they can get easier acceptance into a high-performance lab uh, such as yours? Like, what kind of things are you finding you have to teach somebody when they show up, even though they've been taking 400, 500 level classes, but you still are like, oh, but you don't know this, this, this. What are some of those skills? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. It really is the million dollar question as well. Because if you ever look inside the university structure, and I, I don't recommend it, right? Like keep the hood down. Well, you'll find it's a territorial mess, right? Different departments and different colleges battling over different domains. And the only one who suffers is the student, right? Mm -hmm. Because the dean of one college will say, no, 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 this belongs to us, right? This is the college of businesses domain. And the engineer will be like, whoa, 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 cybersecurity is us, right? We're the ones that are all about networking. And then you have behavioral and community science. It's like, hey, hey, we're human behavior. So we actually get the forensic side of things. And then there becomes this issue with who gets to teach what. If you're majoring here, then you don't get the experience here. And you don't get the exposure here. But this exposure is also important. So, you know, what is the student to do? And I've been really conflicted lately because I'm forced to be honest, right? Um, you know, you said we're winging it and winging it's all I do. I'm open, I'm honest, and people are going to like it or dislike it, and I'm not going to lose sleep at night either way. I'm the same. And so what I tell my students is none of these programs have all of the skills you need. 
In fact, my advice to listeners as a whole, not just undergraduate students, is if it's being taught in the classroom, it's probably outdated, right? So you have to be a proactive forever student, right? I talked about how I already have a PhD in criminology, but I have several other degrees as well. I have um, graduate certificates in digital forensic, strategic intelligence, cyber intelligence. And at the end of this year, I'll have another master's degree in cybersecurity. And that requires taking courses in engineering, um, business, arts and sciences, et cetera. And I think that's exactly what's required if you want to get this holistic understanding of cybersecurity, the cybersecurity landscape, and be prepared to develop innovative solutions forward. Because if you're an expert in one domain, you have an invested interest in saying, this is what matters. Now, I don't have that invested interest, right? For me, I want to build a lab structure that recognizes that all of these colleges, all of these departments have skills to offer, and we need to bring them together in order to ensure our students have what the industry so desperately seeks. So technical skills are extremely important, right? In engineering, I just took um, some more networking classes, right? I think it's extremely important that someone in cybersecurity understands how networks operate. While simultaneously, you need to understand basic programming. But in addition to that, you need to understand forensics, right? Um, I think digital forensics is one of the uh, most fascinating areas of cybersecurity because it really is archaeology in a way. You're you know, using these tools, this skill set to actually uncover and recreate past events. So you can say, you know, this is what occurred and this is how it happened, which you know, digital forensics sounds niche, but not really. You can think of digital forensics um, in the realm of incident response, risk management, or cybersecurity as a whole. So what I'm looking to build in my lab, we've already built this, is a collection of scholars with different skills who come in each week, they bring projects forward, and they give students hands-on skills in these different areas, allowing them to demonstrate their expertise and oftentimes you know, present their research either in peer-reviewed outlets, industry reports, or I had an undergraduate two weeks ago actually helped me conduct a training to Homeland Security. He showed Homeland Security officers um, how we actually developed and implemented you know, dark net chatbots, which were really cool. It's uh, We essentially own and operate a dark web market that sells ransomware. Individuals go on to said market and we're able to kind of monitor their behavior a bit and chat with them to better understand, you know, what they're doing, you know, why they're doing it and essentially what the end goal is. But to do that, right, you need to understand networking, you need to understand programming, and you need to understand basic communication. Some of my best students um, will have degrees in, you know, computer science and engineering but they're never going to have these management-oriented positions because they lack the social skills. Not all of them, of course, right? But when they're able to take the technical skills they have and then supplement it with the ability to effectively communicate, whether that be you know, verbally or through writing reports, that's what fosters success, at least in my opinion, in cybersecurity and in life more generally, right? It's taking different skills, combining them together, and ensuring that you are the whole package. It's no longer the master of one trade, right? You have to be a jack of all because if you don't understand this, then how are you going to understand the entire ecosystem? Okay. So last question, what advice would you give to people who are perhaps even still in high school and they are looking down the road at you know career paths that lead through a discipline such as yours? What advice do you have for people who've still tying their shoes, if you will? Yeah, I guess I have three pieces of advice. The first one, and I already alluded to this earlier, maybe I already directly stated it, but it's worth stating again. If it's taught in a classroom, it's it's outdated. You have to be a proactive and lifelong student. Um, 
as soon as I finish this additional master's degree, I'll roll into another one. I'm considering another PhD, but that's not enough, right? I'm still learning skills that may have been relevant 10 years ago. So outside the classroom, I'm continually honing my skills, ensuring that I know how to use whichever tools and techniques the industry needs, because that's the only way I could teach that to my students. But maybe their professor or their high school teacher doesn't have that same mentality, right? It's up to them to go online and learn to learn. That's an important skill set, likely the most important skill set that anyone, um, especially those in cybersecurity, should work to have by the time they start their career. Secondly, you know, it's uh, it's convenient to specialize, right? It's convenient to say like this is what's important, right? That like, you need to be an expert in digital forensics. You need to be the best programmer, but only in Python. I don't think that's the case, right? I think that risk management and cybersecurity as a whole requires holistic solutions. So rather than fixating in one specific area, you can certainly be an expert in one area, but rather than fixating on one area, you have to understand the ecosystem and the landscape in its entirety. Um, You have to understand the human component. You have to understand threat intelligence. And you also have to understand the technical components that allow these crimes to be conducted in the first place. And once you have this holistic understanding, you're able to paint a fuller picture, right? It's it's uh, it's 3D now, right? It's no longer the stick figure that we're used to, at least in academia. And lastly, my advice would be question the effectiveness of everything. Um, everyone has you know, vested interest. Um, cybersecurity companies want to sell a product. Academics don't want to lose tenure. Um, but at the end of the day, we need you know, rigorous scientific methodology testing. Does this work? And if so, in what context does it work? And most importantly, can it be improved upon? We have this mentality in the US, probably worldwide, to accept it if someone with authority says it. And I don't think that should be the case. I think we need to continually improve upon our current solutions um, to ensure that they're evidence-based, they're proactive, and they're effective. Because if they're not effective, then they're a waste of money and the taxpayer fronts the bill. Yeah, absolutely agreed on that front. I was astonished at the research that would just get abandoned in the last mile where someone had spent years of effort and they discover something new to do. People lost interest and you know they moved on. Meanwhile, taxpayers put you know, a couple million dollars in the grant, you know, a year over the course of that time. I was lucky enough to largely be on the hardware side. So typically we would just repurpose hardware, right? So like the grid, the cluster was doing one type of research and then we just swing it over. But where I had worked, we were very into particle physics and doing N-body experimentation and stuff like that. But the gravy train on those sciences started to dry up, right? So it was like a, a quick pivot into protein folding so we could start to look into bio and life sciences. Luckily for us, uh, we had built computational resource that was applicable to either of these scenarios. It was you know, a, a massive parallelized system. But wow, I sure felt bad for the, you know, these kids who had spent, uh, and I say kids now, they were, you know, the same age as me at the time, but in hindsight, they're always kids, right? Because I got old and they didn't. But I felt bad for them because there were people who, you know, were sitting in a radio telescope getting a, a gigabyte a minute, which at the time, uh, I won't overly age myself, but let's think, you know, there were two zeros in the date back then. 
But they had spent all this time and kind of the interest in their science dried up. And the parent professor who was responsible for it all, like you said, became concerned that their tenure was uh, at risk because they were doing boring science. And these poor grad students were like most of the way through doctorals and master's theses and, and then had to suddenly switch gears or transfer schools altogether to locations that were still doing energy sciences. And what a shame, uh, in my opinion. So, Well, it's extremely problematic. It's why I've shifted towards working with industry. So if anyone's listening to the podcast and wants to connect uh, Dr. Cybercrime, you can follow me on Twitter. But that's why I've shifted towards working with industry because they always have an end goal, right? When you look at government agencies or taxes as a whole, right? Government agencies, taxation, or even the way in which universities operate with grant money, oftentimes it's this blank check that someone's always funding without needing to meet a certain criteria, right? Because it's already being paid. The taxpayers are already paying it. We don't have to, I don't mean me specifically, but if if there's not a requirement that comes with the check, then why would anyone produce a required deliverable, right? The money's coming either way. It's why our roadways are so terrible, right? Because tax money's coming in either way, right? Who cares? If we actually capital, we say we're going to face. It's counter to capitalism. How the whole rest of the machine works that we live in operates on capitalist mechanism, except for this, for somehow. I agree completely. So I'm all about if we accept a project, there needs to be deliverables, and we need to ensure that we're able to actually provide what we say we're going to provide and improve upon our partnering institutions, security posture, and framework. And if we can't do that, as far as I'm concerned, there should be penalty. But under the current model, there isn't penalty. And if there's not penalty, there's simply not an expectation, let alone need to perform the way we should. So that I completely agree with you. Yeah. Corporate partnership definitely alleviates that because if you're, <laughs> what you're doing is a waste, well, guess what? They're not going to do it anymore. So it, it tends to go away. E- even the giant, giant companies uh, who have seemingly endless piles of money to apply to things, they don't entertain crazy ideas for long. Well, they have bottomless pits of money because they spend money wisely, right? They they don't continually fund projects where deliverables are expected or mandated. Sure. So I'm, we're not usually uh, ones to you know plug anything or anyone or you know anything like that. But given that you do have private sector partners who are working with you, I wouldn't be opposed to taking a minute and making sure they hear their name uh, in a podcast so that they uh, do get recognized. Are, are there any uh, notable partners you have in that space that you'd like to thank? Yeah, I, did. I would love to truly, but I have lots of NDAs that say, listen, you can do work with us. We can prove upon our um, security framework, but don't mention our name in podcasts because we want to seem as if we're uh, perfect the way we are. So okay. I love my corporate partners, but um, I, I probably won't shout them out here just to be safe. Okay, sure. So Apple and Microsoft. No, I'm kidding. I wish Apple and Microsoft. Anyone from Microsoft listening, let me know. Yeah, I'm just kidding. And I, I uh, like to be facetious with the big boys, but I want Elon Musk to call me up so we can start looking at the uh, the, the cybersecurity posture of the Teslas. Right? How terrible it would be to be driving down the interstate, you know, get hacked and run off the road. So yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, and you'd need at least two or three of those vehicles, right? Just for testing purposes, of course. I need, I need one in the front room of my lab, right? Um, yeah. It would definitely not get stakeholders' attention, right? It would improve our uh, investment game. That's for sure. Right. That's funny. Well, excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jordan. Uh, that's all the time we have. Like I described, we try to hit that lunchtime sweet spot. 
You had mentioned your Twitter feed. Are there any other ways where folks can follow either you or your lab's research and publications? Yeah, absolutely. So Twitter is where I post uh, most of my research. Um, it's the best way to stay up to date on the latest findings produced by myself for Sarasota Cybersecurity, and that's at dr underscore cybercrime, Dr. Cybercrimes, dr underscore cybercrime. And if anyone has any direct uh, questions or want to contact me, they can certainly reach out to me via email um, at cjhowell, which is H-O-W-E-L-L, at usf.edu. Um, so cjhowell at usf.edu. I'm always happy to chat about cybersecurity or, I mean, anything tech-related, to be honest. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Jordan. Uh, thanks for joining us. And I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. I certainly did. It was a good trip down memory lane from my time in academia. I'm glad to hear nothing's changed. Got it. <laughs> Fantastic time. Thanks for having me. It was a true pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.